Let's go to Daniel chapter 9 tonight. Let's resume our series through the book of Daniel. For the last three messages, we have been considering the 70-week prophecy that Daniel received. I purposefully have slowed down in this portion of the Scriptures because it is very often misunderstood and incorrectly taught in our day, in my opinion. So this is a very important text to understand because how you interpret Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is going to have a major impact on how you interpret the rest of your end-time prophecy in the Scripture. If you're familiar with the Continental Divide, then you know it's the great watershed of our nation. If rain falls on the west side of the Continental Divide, it flows to the Pacific Ocean. If it falls on the east side of the Continental Divide, it'll make its way to the Mississippi and into the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic Ocean. And so this, these verses that we're considering in Daniel have become the great Continental Divide of prophecy. How you fall on either side of your interpretation of this will determine which direction you're going to take for the rest of your eschatology and you'll either flow towards Christ or you'll flow toward Antichrist. Now, I've already covered verses 24, 25, and the first phrase of verse 26, which means there's far too much to try and recap at this point. So if you've missed anything, would you please go back and listen to those messages, especially if you're just jumping in right now. Some of this may seem... Um, out of place because you got to get it all. So we're going to begin tonight by reading this once again. It's probably easier to see it in the pages of your Bible, verses 24 through 27, and then we'll pick back up in verse 26. The Bible says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined." He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we saw last time that there's a total of 69 weeks into the Messiah, or 483 years, and then the Messiah would be cut off. But he'd be cut off not because of any sin he committed. He'd be cut off for us, amen, to purchase our salvation. And the Messiah being cut off is really the pinnacle of this uh, text. Most everyone agrees this refers to when Jesus died upon the cross. And he laid down his life for whosoever would call upon him in faith. And since this 70-week prophecy is determined, and since 70 always follows 69, then in my opinion, Christ must have been cut off at some point within the 70th week. 
We'll see that in verse 27 when we get there. Remember that there's never a prophecy in Scripture when a specific time frame is given where a gap shows up in the timeline. But for some reason, when it comes to this prophecy, many make a gap show up in between the 69th and the 70th week, which has now been ongoing for some 2,000 years. And so we'll pick this back up where we left off. In verse 26, we read, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So who are the people and who is the prince? Let's remember how context is critical to understanding God's word. When we read in verse 26 that the Messiah shall be cut off, which Messiah is being referred to? I asked this last time, contextually, it has to refer back to the Messiah, verse 25. Does everybody see that? I think this is obvious to all of us here. So then who is the prince of verse 26 then? Since the Messiah of verse 26 is the same as the Messiah of verse 25, then doesn't it stand to reason, contextually, that the prince of verse 26 is also the same prince of verse 25? It's Messiah the prince. But for some reason, from this point forward, many Bible teachers will completely change the context from Christ to Antichrist in this one phrase in the middle of a sentence. And they'll shift it to the Antichrist and say the little p prince refers to Antichrist. And what many are doing is they're making Antichrist show up out of nowhere. At no point has the Antichrist ever been mentioned, ever been hinted at in this prophecy, nowhere in this chapter. And if we leave the context of it being Messiah, the prince, and switch to Antichrist, it changes the meaning and the interpretation entirely. It transfers the main purpose of this prophecy from Christ to Antichrist. Now, why is this prince considered by some to be someone never mentioned yet in context? Many make the argument that because the Messiah, the prince in verse 25, is capitalized, and the prince in verse 26 is lowercase, then they can't possibly be the same prince. But is this really a strong argument? When we compare Scripture with Scripture, and remember the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, When we compare Scripture with Scripture, then we discover there's no scriptural reason to suggest that just because it's a little p prince, that it cannot refer to Christ. For example, in Revelation 1.5, we read, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So are we naturally to conclude the context of Revelation 1.5 must switch from Jesus Christ to Antichrist because the prince isn't capitalized? Of course not. Why? Because context is everything. And yet this is exactly what many are doing in Daniel 9.26. And I think it's because many have never really studied this out. Now, here's something to consider the Hebrew language did not originally have any capitalizations. 
And that means all Old Testament capitalizations that we have in our English Bible are at the discretion of the translators. And I know there are some, and they'll say, well, our King James Bible, it has the two princes differentiated, and that's good enough for me. Well, it may surprise you to learn that the 1611 had both of these princes capitalized. Obviously, you can't read that. And I, here, this is what I did on my computer program. You'll see some different spellings, obviously, because it's 1611 English. But both princes were once capitalized. Why was it changed? Beats me. I used to think this kind of knowledge would blow the minds of my brethren who are King James only, but I'm learning that no matter how much evidence is offered, it rarely makes a difference. This is why I don't show up on any of the prophecy stuff out there, although I have been invited. I just to this date have not had peace to go on any of these shows because what difference am I really making? Amen. Another uh, common interpretation of the prince in verse 26 is Roman general Titus. But for the same reasons I cannot accept the Antichrist, I can't readily accept Titus as an option either because heretofore he's not been mentioned in context. And why change the context? Let's keep it within the Messiah, the prince. I want to consider the context one more time because this is absolutely critical. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary. And so again, if the Messiah of verse 26 clearly is referring to the Messiah of verse 25, then why within the same sentence in verse 26, wouldn't the prince be connected to the Messiah? Without adding any of our presupposed ideas of what we want this context to say, the lowercase prince has to refer back contextually to the Messiah, the prince. Now, I've never tested this. I'd like to. But I'm convinced if we were to give these set of verses to some English teacher and say, who is this prince? They're going to say it's the Messiah, the prince, because that's the context. If this is the correct assessment, which I believe it is, then the lowercase prince is the Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ. And once we correctly identify the prince, then we can try to identify the people of the prince that shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, first, it is agreed by all that the city and the sanctuary, which will be destroyed, is Jerusalem and, of course, the sanctuary being the temple. The only debate here is whether or not this refers to a third future temple or was this fulfilled when the second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. We'll come back to that thought later, I think, in verse 27. So who are the people? Well, we know for sure they're the people of the prince. Amen? I've already shown, and it's, I'm content to say that I've already shown there's no scriptural reason to say the prince in verse 26 is the Antichrist. Therefore, I believe we can rule out these people being the people of the Antichrist. Uh, 
Not to mention, there's nowhere else in the Bible where we can even try to make a connection that a future Antichrist is going to destroy Jerusalem in the sanctuary. It's not even hinted at in the New Testament. And, and understand, this is where I think a lot of people mess up. The, the New Testament shows the fulfillment of the Old. And what many are trying to do today is use the Old Testament um, to show fulfillment in the New. And when you do that, you start getting things backwards and messed up and, and all the rest. It doesn't work. With the Antichrist being ruled out, then there's really only two viable options as far as the most common opinions in identifying the people of the prince. It would either be the Romans who showed up in 70 AD, or actually they showed up in 66, but the Romans or the Jews themselves. A common interpretation of the people is the Romans under the command of General Titus. This has led to many people saying the prince then must be uh, Titus, the little prince. There's no disputing that the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. They surrounded the city in 66 and in 70. They destroyed it thoroughly. And they also destroyed the sanctuary. And certainly the Roman army could be said to be the people of the prince. And it still be the Messiah of the prince. Because our Lord can use whoever he sees fit. And they be the instruments in his hand. And be called his. We do see examples of this elsewhere in the Bible. Most recently, I think of who we've covered in this context, then that's Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, who God called my anointed. He called him his shepherd. God called Nebuchadnezzar, who also destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, my servant before it ever came to pass. In addition, Jesus said in a parable in Matthew 22, 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. So on this idea of the Romans under the command of Titus, another reason it is said the prince that shall come shall be a a prince other than the Messiah and maybe possibly be Titus is because verse 26 says, and the people of the prince that shall come being later down the road from the crucifixion. And so if this prince is to arrive sometime down the road, then some people say, well, it can't be the Messiah, the prince. But let's consider the wording again. And it can depend on how one reads this phrase. And the people of the prince that shall come. Is it saying the prince shall come or just the people of the prince that shall come? I don't see that it has to mean that it was the people and the prince, as most make it say, it could be no prince arrives at all. And that it's only the people of the prince. Now another reason the Romans are considered by many to be the people of the prince is because most will conclude that the people to destroy Jerusalem in the sanctuary couldn't possibly be Israel. And therefore in their thinking, the prince can't possibly be the Messiah. But is there any scriptural evidence to suggest that Israel is in fact the people of the prince? And would they destroy themselves? Is there biblical evidence for this? Absolutely. 
Hosea 13.9. It says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 11. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. The show of their countenance doth witness against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. And so in my mind, it's, it's easy to say that if they destroyed themselves in the Old Testament, they can destroy themselves in the New Testament. Plus, it makes logical sense that if the prince is the Messiah of the prince, then the people of the prince would have to be the Jews. Now, let's keep building upon this a little bit about Israel destroying themselves. Let's consider what Jesus said when he came near to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And when he, speaking of Jesus, was come near, he beheld the city, speaking of Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus clearly puts the ownership of the destruction of Jerusalem upon the inhabitants of the city. And the only reason the enemy surrounded the city in the first place and, and destroyed it was because they had rejected their Messiah. They made war with God and His Christ. There would have been no destruction if there would have been no rejection. See also America. We are turning away from the Lord. And look at what's happening to our once great nation. Just a side note, but this, this destruction would take place outside of the 70th week, but it is given here as a result of the consequence of rejecting and killing the Messiah, the Prince. And that's why the colon is used there. It's separating these two independent clauses in verse 26. So how did the Jews destroy their city and their sanctuary? Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35 Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. And even after Christ's crucifixion, they would continue to reject Christ and His message by killing and crucifying and scourging and persecuting those who were preaching Christ. And as a result, Jesus will... He goes on here in just a minute. He pronounces judgment upon their city and sanctuary. Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not... Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Very long story short, <laughs> there was a political group that rose to power in Judea. They were known as the Zealots. 
and they gained control of Jerusalem in the first century, and they successfully incited a rebellion against Rome. And this prompted Rome to send General Vespasian to Jerusalem, and he began surrounding the city in 66. He later became the Caesar in 69, and he left his son Titus in control at uh, Jerusalem. And by 70 AD, the, the siege had now turned to war. Both Titus and, just, and Jewish historian Josephus tried to get the zealots to stop their rebellion. They refused. And the zealots killed anyone who dared to get in their way. They were a very radicalized group. They burnt the food that they had in stock to get people to realize you either fight or you're going to die of starvation. And they would kill anybody who didn't want to resist Rome. And so they were very violent. A couple years into the siege, the zealots, they began to move their base of operations into the temple. And this was the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it ought not. Jesus mentions that in the Olivet Discourse. I don't have time to cover all that, but we'll cover more of this thought when we get to verse 27. Now, it's interesting to note how General Titus uh, had no no desire to destroy the temple, but this prophecy had to be fulfilled. Amen? Because Jesus has said, your house is left unto you desolate. And when the Romans entered the city, they made their way up to the temple mount. And again, I'm leaving out all kind of detail. The order was eventually given for the zealots' destruction. Because they had made their fortress in the temple, they eventually burned the temple grounds. And so the people of the prince who came destroyed themselves and their sanctuary. And lastly, we read at the end of verse 26, And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. The siege of Jerusalem from 66 to 70, it ended with a flood, if you will. Jerusalem was utterly swept away like a flood. Uh, Not one stone left upon another, and the desolations would continue until the end of the war. They were thoroughly defeated. Luke 21, verses 20 through 22, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And when Jesus said all things must be fulfilled, that includes Daniel 9. And uh, we'll say more about the second half, uh, say more about this in the second half of verse 27. But for tonight, because I want to get to some, some business being the first Wednesday of the month, I'm going to stop at the end of verse 26. We'll pick back up next time in verse 27. And if you have any comments or questions, you can come see me after our meeting. And so let's pray. We'll hand out the financial report. And then I'll see about if we can help um, our missionaries and take on one for support. So let's bow for a word of prayer.